0: Thank you, Mr. McNair, and a good Sabbath afternoon to all of you on a clear but cold winter's day here in Charlotte. But, you know, it's all relative. I was watching the Weather Channel briefly this morning, and it was 45 degrees below zero in International Falls. So we can count our blessings here this afternoon. But happy Sabbath to all of you and to all who may see this as it goes out around the country and around the world at at a later time. It's wonderful to have such a big crowd today, over 200 uh, God has certainly blessed us here in Charlotte and it, it's uh, it's just a wonderful thing to see this kind of growth with it It brings its problems of finding a place to meet and I hope you'll all pray about that as we look for that Certainly want to welcome any guests that we may have i uh, glad that you chose to spend Sabbath afternoon with us here in Charlotte You know brethren we live in a world today that has a short attention span All about you you see people and things moving at a furious pace Uh, People lose interest quickly and then move on to something else. Uh, Look at the entertainment situation or the entertainment. The stickiest problem can be solved in a one-hour television show. It's just all wrapped up neatly. Uh, Then news that you watch on television consists of sound bites of just a few seconds. There's very little in-depth coverage and then uh, you also see three or four different kinds of information going on the screen. Something going on this side and something underneath and, and someone talking, maybe two or three people talking. And, and that's where we are in this short interspan. The mood of the times is go, 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 move, move more. You probably get caught up in that from time to time and you see that happening all around you. That's the age in which we live. Now as a result of that, many people are unsettled. Unfocused. They're adrift, looking for something to fill the void, that inner ache or feeling of emptiness that we as human beings can have. I'm sure in your life you felt that, just something missing, a void. Now, things won't do it. Things won't do it. You know, there's a cynical saying, uh, you know, the only difference between men and boys is the cost of their toys. and the, the bumper sticker that you've seen that says whoever dies with the most toys wins <laughs> because this is kind of the way it is things don't won't fill that void uh, and yet people try to do that with the latest gadget the latest appliance the latest thing that they would have to to entertain themselves with and yet quickly it the new wears off alcohol and drugs won't do it will not fill The void that people are looking for. Now, famous people have tried, and almost daily in the news you'll see about this famous person, this entertainer going into rehab, going in for counseling and this sort of thing to overcome drug addiction and so on. You see, trying to fill that void with alcohol or drugs just will not do it. And, of course, constant activity won't do it, though many try. And Satan is very happy when we're busy from the moment we get up in the morning till we fall into bed exhausted late at night and have never given God and the things, spiritual things a a thought. Don't have time for that. Most people do not. You see the constant activity. So we see that physical things will not fill the void that we as human beings have. Now what this world needs is God's truth, His way of life, the right goal. Dr. Meredith has said on several occasions, and it's very true, that we need to be a part of something greater than ourselves to have a fulfilled life. We, we have to have a cause or a crusade or uh, something that transcends ourselves to be a part of. And certainly that helps to, to give us purpose in our life as we go along. Now, for some today, you see it in the news, it's own gangs fill that need to belong to something, and we have a tremendous problem in in most of the developed world, certainly here in Charlotte and other places, with the gang cultures. You know, they, they're belonging to something. Then, of course, for some people, it's the country club, getting involved in the country club setting, in the social world. You see that they're looking for filling that void. For some, it's professional organizations uh, that. Uh, to promote their their profession or their livelihood, this sort of thing. For some, it's uh, fraternities or sororities, you see, wanting to belong to something. People as human beings, you see, seem to need that. What is often lacking and what is sorely needed in people's lives, brethren, is a sense of commitment. You see, this world is adrift and lacks a sense of commitment. Now you probably heard the old story of World War II, the kamikaze pilot that flew 50 missions. He was involved, but he wasn't committed. <laughs> and you probably heard the story of of the hen, the hen and the pig discovering the farmer's breakfast of ham and eggs. You see, the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. <laughs> so today, brethren. let's look at the subject of commitment and see what it means to a Christian. We as Christians should certainly understand the subject. The title of the sermon today is Commitment, a Spiritual Requirement. Now, I always like to look in the dictionary. We we know what it means, but it's always good, I think, to get a, a definition. And Webster's Collegiate Dictionary says commit means to connect, to entrust. It means a charge of trust, something... Pledged. It means the state of being obligated or emotionally impelled to be connected, you see. And most important things in your life and mine require a commitment to succeed. For example, education. It requires time and money and effort to, and sticking with it to complete the course whether it be high school or certainly college, I think some of the people who have enrolled in living university courses were surprised. It took work, and it took commitment, you see, to succeed in that, and many have, of course, and more are doing that. But so many times uh, people drop out. You see, if you look at the dropout rate here in North Carolina, it's astounding. A little over half the students, I think, complete high school. It's an incredible dropout rate, the same in college. You see, they lack commitment. That it takes to complete the course. Now, a good job or a trade or a career requires that one be committed to learning the ropes, being patient until one becomes established. Sometimes that takes years in an apprentice program or training, and you see so few are willing. Even getting a mortgage for a home or a car and so on requires counting the cost, agreeing to the terms and conditions. And certainly, if you look at what's going on in our country today, certainly it's up now because of the, the collapse of our economy in so many areas. But the rate of bankruptcies in this country is a strong indication of the lack of commitment. Sometimes people just find it easier to walk away and not keep the commitment that they made. Now, a prime example in a very, of a very important relationship that requires commitment is marriage. Turn over to Matthew 19. We have some wonderful couples here in our congregation and in the church around the world that have been married for a very, very long time. And we know that takes commitment, and we certainly honor them when we have the occasion on their anniversaries and so on. Look at Matthew 19. Jesus explained to the Pharisees as they sought to question Him. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees also came to Him, testing Him, See, they weren't really interested in the truth here. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to trick him or to, to cause him to make a mistake. The Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? And he knew that they had, by the way. You see, they knew their Bibles, that at least the Old Testament. Have you not read that he who made them made them? at the at the beginning made them male and female and said for this reason a man shall not leave his father and mother and be joined shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so then jesus said they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let no man separate it was a permanent relationship that's what god intended Now, obviously, there were some exceptions that were laid out in Scripture. And yet the Pharisees at that time obviously wanted to divorce their wives, and many did, for just any reason. And Jesus explained to them that was not the case and that it requires a a commitment for life. Certainly, brethren, I know that we in the church, if you contemplate marriage, we urge counseling. Um, We urge people to get to know each other to really explore the situation and be on firm ground and ready to make that long-term, lifelong commitment. Turn over to Malachi as we look at this subject. What does God think about marriage? Let's look at the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 makes it very plain as we look at this subject of marriage and the commitment required for that. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed in your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. It was necessary to say this, brethren, because they were dealing treacherously with their wives. Going on in verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Here he repeats that. So if God hates divorce, brethren, so should we. So should we. And from time to time, it even creeps into the church. And we need to realize what God's approach is and be committed to our mates and to marriage. Now, going on, looking at other things that require commitment, you know, the most important decision we can make Concerning our personal salvation is baptism. It's commanded over, let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You know this on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was given, when the New Testament church began. When those wonderful miracles were occurring, the gifts of tongues and of languages and so on. And the apostles preaching powerful sermons. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, the people who were there, you see a symbol, they were cut to the heart, meaning they were touched deeply, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's a question that all of us come to in our lives, asking the question regarding salvation. What shall we do? Then Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So clearly we see that it was commanded, this repentance and accepting Jesus Christ and being baptized, and then you receive the Holy Spirit. And most of you here, certainly many of you here, have gone through that. And you understand how important it is. But let's look at the account about over a few pages, uh, when uh, Acts chapter 22, when Paul was telling about his conversion. Acts 22. Paul was recounting the details of his conversion. Acts chapter 22. Acts 22, verse 12. Let's actually, yes, in 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, again Paul is telling his story, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Paul had been struck blind, and now he can see this man. Then he said, Ananias said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know His will, And see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16. Now Ananias said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What a beautiful uh, story this is. Paul telling about it. And Ananias asked a good question, brethren. He said to Paul, why are you waiting? And I'm sure maybe we have some in this room today, and some who may hear this, who uh, have come to a place where they know what they need to do. They realize that repentance is required, and baptism, and the laying on of hands. But for whatever reason, maybe a lack of commitment, they've not taken that step. So this is recorded for uh, for us to read, and it certainly applies to all of us. And now why are you waiting? At baptism, with a laying on of hands, one receives the Holy Spirit and embarks on a journey, a pilgrimage of growing and overcoming. And we have, as was mentioned in the the very fine sermonette, we have babes in Christ here, and what a wonderful thing that is. And they've embarked upon their journey. Some have been going this way for 40 years or 50-plus years, you see. And yet every day is a growing experience. Every time we open the Scriptures, there are things that we can learn the, the situation in life teaches us lessons. And this whole physical life that we have is about growing and overcoming. And it all really begins at baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit. Accepting Jesus Christ means to accept His message and to follow His instructions. And there's more to that than what most people would realize. It means a commitment to the way the way which is spoken of in so many places but second peter chapter 2 says it so plainly turn back there second peter as we look at this way of life that we begin and what's required second peter second peter chapter 2 second peter chapter 2 second peter chapter 2, 2, peter chapter 2 Verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. We see that today, certainly. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth, Peter spoke of here. And then... Going on in this same chapter, then drop down to verse 15. I hope you read all of it in your personal Bible study, but drop down to verse 15. Peter continues, They have forsaken the right way. There it is again, the way. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the ways wages of unrighteousness. So, uh, clearly, the right way is mentioned. And then drop down to verse 21 verse 21 of Second Peter chapter two. Peter said, "For it would have been better for them had not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. The way of righteousness, the way of truth, the right way. You see, we, we see it referred to in that way. And brethren, you have all been called that way, and as you go through your life each day, you're living that way. This way, as it is called, as we've just seen here, affects everything that we do. When you understand it, it affects everything that we do. It affects how we think. How we think. Over in Proverbs 23, verse 7, I won't turn there, but you can make a note of it. It says, as a man thinketh, so is he. So you all realize that sin begins in the mind. Everything that we do as physical human beings starts as an idea. You know, if you see a big skyscraper downtown, it started as an idea, you see. Or if you see some great plan that's worked out, it started as an idea. And when you see some heinous crime or sin, something that pulls one down, it started as an idea. So the way that we are called to affects how we think. We are to think righteous thoughts. We're to fill our mind with what's in the Scriptures. We're to follow the examples of those who are righteous. Now, this way, as I said, affects everything we do. Why, it even affects what we eat. Now, that gets our attention. That gets our attention. You know, over in Leviticus 11, it gives the, the dietary laws. And again, in Deuteronomy 14. And, and why does it do that? Look at Deuteronomy 14. Let's take a brief look there. Why would God be concerned about what we eat? Why would He care about that? Well, he tells us here in Deuteronomy 14, and it's all a part of the way. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself. So God says here that, that he has set us apart, his people. Now, he was talking to physical Israel there. Today, we, the church, is spiritual Israel, and so the same principle applies. He has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any detestable or abominable thing. He wanted his people to be different back then physically and today for us physically and spiritually He wanted them to be different. And he lists these things that are detestable, that are abominable, things not designed for human consumption. Now, most people on the face of the earth don't understand that. And they'll eat anything that doesn't bite them first. You know. (laughs) And so, but we understand as God's people that there is a better way. And God gave us this. And to do that, of course, really affects the way that we live our lives. Now, it also affects how we spend our money. Now, anytime you start dealing with someone's money, the true colors come out. Uh, I can tell you, as one who spent many years in the claims business handling insurance claims, I can tell you that when you get down to someone's pocketbook to the wallet, then obviously uh, the real motives and the real uh, person comes out. But God's way uh, impacts how we spend our money. Turn over to Uh, Malachi again, again, familiar scriptures to you, but let's take a look because it's important to God that we use our money in a right way and have our priorities right. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, will a man rob God? Malachi 3 verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet he says, you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And tithes and offerings. Very plain, brethren. He says, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And as you think about the deplorable situation our nation is in, with the economy in the tank, with millions of people out of work, with all sorts of problems going on, brethren, a basic cause is right here. We are cursed with a curse because this nation has robbed God and not paid tithes as instructed in His Word. Verse 10. He says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Eternal of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I know, brethren, that you're faithful in doing that, and many of you are being blessed in that way. I know we see the income in the church. For a group our size, it's good. Certainly we need more. There's always more things to spend it on as far as getting the gospel out and the things that we need. And yet when we look at our numbers and we look at our income, we can only thank God that he has inspired people to pay their tithes and give offerings and do those things. And then our job, of course, is to be good stewards. And we try to do that. So God does tell us how to spend our money. I won't turn there because you're very familiar with it, but in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, He says how to handle your money on the holy days. To not come before Him three seasons in the year, we're to come before God, but we're not to come before Him empty. So we're to think about it and plan and and consider how we've been blessed and make an effort then to give an offering that is commensurate with that, showing God that we appreciate His blessings. So again, this way of life, touches and and involves how we spend our money. This way of life also uh, involves how we spend our time. You know, here you are today. There's probably a football game on you'd like to see. (laughs) And yet you're here because you know that this time is special. It's not for football. It's not for outdoor activities. It's not for pursuing your own pleasures. But it's to keep the Sabbath, to honor God, to study His Word, to be taught, and so on. Now, over in Leviticus 23, we have the Holy Days. I won't turn there, but we see there the first one listed in Leviticus 23 is the Sabbath. And then, of course, it lists each of the Holy Days, which we find so enjoyable and from which we learn. These Holy Days, which picture God's plan. You know, Mr. Armstrong and Mrs. Armstrong kept the Holy Days, I believe, for seven years and didn't know what they meant. They knew the Scripture said to do it, and so they did it. And then... As often is the case, understanding follows obedience. And God opened their minds to the importance of the holy days and what they picture. And so today we have a better grasp of the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like. And God's plan, because we spend our time, a good portion of our time, the way God says that we should. You know, as we keep the Sabbath, one of the things we don't talk about a lot, but we should probably focus on more, is the preparation day. And that's the day before the Sabbath. If we use it properly, then we can keep the Sabbath uh, better in the sense that we will not have to do routine things that take our mind away from the things we should be focusing on. So, God's way of life, this way that you're on, determines how we spend our time. It certainly also impacts how we treat other people. Turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we'll start in verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. Let's start in verse 35. It says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Now, there's something I'm sure you know about lawyers. They almost always know the answer to the question before they ask it. <laughs> you see, it's always a test when you're dealing with an attorney. So he 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 knew, thought he knew the answer. He was testing Jesus. And then uh, he said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall serve the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, And with all your mind, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we're to love God and we're to love our neighbor. And the unsaid part there, brethren, but what you have to understand is that even when they're unlovable, (laughs) you see, it doesn't depend upon how they're act. We are to love our neighbor. And obviously, it takes God's inspiration to do that. Turn over to a verse that you have memorized. If not, I'm sure you, you, you know of it. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. It's known as the golden rule. The golden rule. And truly, it is more precious than gold when we understand it. Matthew chapter 7, and verse 12. Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule, brethren, of loving our neighbor, loving other people. It's not a normal, uh, natural thing for us to do that. We typically, as human beings, uh, are concerned about ours, our family, our situation, our, our, uh, the people that are close to us, and we don't really care about those out there. And yet God says we are to love our neighbor. We have love for others. How we treat others is a very important part of the way to which we have been called, the way to which we are committed. And then, as we think about this way, we realize that it is a lifetime pursuit. You know, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon, it's it's an endurance race. And God is interested, as we will see, turn over to Matthew chapter 10. God is interested in strong starts, I'm sure. But he's more interested in strong finishes. Being at the finish line is what really counts with God. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. He was telling them what was going to happen. And described some various trials that we would have in verse 21 and 22. He says, verse 22, And you shall be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. You see, it's a lifetime pursuit. He who endures to the end. Turn over a few pages to Matthew 24, probably the most read chapter in your Bible. Matthew 24. Here again, Jesus explaining to his disciples as they requested, when are these things going to happen? And he, he laid it out, and it's recorded for us. And we study these scriptures, and we look around to see the milestones of what's happening in our time. And in Matthew 24, verse 13, as he uh, talked about all these terrible things where people would be offended, there were going to be false prophets, there would be lawlessness, the love of many would grow cold. He says in verse 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He didn't promise us smooth sailing. He didn't promise us that there would be no bumps in the road or difficulties. But he did say that we needed to endure if we're going to be saved. Brethren, you can read in Revelation, eight times in the book of Revelation, it talks about him who overcomes to the end. So we see that this way of life is, involves every part of our lives, and it gives us a goal that is so very important. It requires real commitment to the way if we're to be a part of God's family. Now, as we look into the Scripture, brethren, we see so many stories in the Bible about Commitment. About those who were committed. And there are some negative examples as well. You know, we can learn from the positive, but we can also learn from the negative, and they make powerful statements. And we can say, I don't want to be that way. That's not what I want to do. You can look in the, back in Genesis, you'll see that Eve didn't last long. She had the instruction, but was deceived. She was not committed. And she influenced Adam. And a lot of the problems we have today, ladies, go back to you. No, it's okay. (laughs) But we love you anyway. But Eve was not committed. Cain, Cain did not commit to God's way and became the first murderer. Think about that. So close to the beginning. And yet he would not commit. He knew what he was doing, and he did it wrong. After the flood, Nimrod went his way, didn't follow God's ways, and uh, would not commit. And today, millennia later, we see so many of the things that Nimrod started in our society today. So many of the things that we see today go all the way back. But Nimrod would not commit to God's ways. You know the story of Esau. Esau gave up his birthright. Why? Lack of vision and, and, and commitment. He was not committed. And because of that, he gave up his birthright and uh, obviously had hatred for his brother and so on afterwards. Now, Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, gave up his birthright because of infidelity and, and sexual misconduct. See, he, ha- he would have been the firstborn. He was the firstborn, but he he lost his birthright because he was not committed. He did wrong, and God removed that from him. You know Dan's tendency for cruelty, and he showed a lack of understanding and commitment to the tribe of Dan. So it's interesting as you look back and see, as I said, negative uh, uh, lack of commitment examples are there from which we can learn. You know the story of Saul, the first king of Israel. He had Samuel, God's prophet, there to instruct him, to be his mentor, his tutor. And yet, uh, he, he had all of that, but he would not follow instruction. I just recently read that, and it's amazing. He would have the instruction, and he would do the opposite. He knew what to do, but he wasn't committed. He took the easy way, or what he thought was best. He was stubborn. And we see the Scripture that talks about stubbornness being like idolatry, you see. So Saul would not commit. And then you know the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to commit. He finally did, reluctantly. But uh, even when you read the story, it seems that even afterwards he wasn't happy with it. Uh, so it's interesting the, the characters that we read about in the Scripture. In the New Testament, we also have some tragic examples. Just really tragic when you understand it, when you think about it. The example of Judas who was one of the twelve, greed and avarice and impatience caused him to lose the vision. He lost the vision. He wasn't committed to it. And he betrayed Jesus Christ. Look over at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And verse 4. John chapter 12, verse 4. We pick up the story. He says, but one of His disciples, you know the story, the um, Mary had taken this uh, uh, very costly oil of spikenard and had uh, anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. You, you know the story. And we pick it up here in verse 4. It says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragr- fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? Brethren, that was a year's wages. This was very costly. This was a sacrifice, you see. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor. It was a front. He was a hypocrite. But because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Judas was an embezzler. And he was right there among them. And he was not. He lost the vision, as I said, because of greed and avarice and along the way. And what a terrible thing. Had it been different, he might have turned out differently. Also in the New Testament, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This couple back there, they had a great opportunity to be a part of the work at that time. But they were hypocrites and liars. And their failure to commit cost them their lives. You can read about that in Acts chapter 5. Very interesting story to see that this couple who had so much promise and the opportunity to make a difference, but as I said, they weren't committed to the way and it cost them their lives. And then there's a very interesting story over in Acts 26 where Paul, turn over there, Acts chapter 26. Paul now is, is under arrest, as you know. And he is making his defense, Paul very eloquent, obviously, and he's making his defense to King Agrippa, and you can you can read the whole chapter of uh, acts twenty six uh, where Agrippa said to Paul, "You're permitted to speak for yourself." so Paul began and uh, and it's this very eloquent defense we'll pick up the story in verse twenty six Let's let's and start in uh, twenty four, verse twenty four of Acts twenty six. Now, as he thus made his defense, Paul is making his defense. You see, Festus said with a loud voice, "Paul, you are driving yourself. You're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad." Some of you people have probably heard that in studying your Bible, and you're ready to say, "You keep studying that Bible, you're going to go crazy." You know, because you spend a lot of time, and it's not balanced in their view. He said to Paul, much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, talking about King Agrippa, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing, all the things Paul had talked about, was not done In a corner, it was widely known. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You see that, brethren? King Agrippa heard and understood, but he would not commit. He was not willing to make the changes in his life that it would require. So he said, I almost, you persuade me. Well, brethren, in God's eyes, almost is not good enough. It requires a commitment, a commitment that King Agrippa would not make. Now, we've seen these negative examples. Let's look at some positive examples. Abraham was faithful to God over a long period of time. You know the story of Abraham, Abram, who became Abraham, and the things that he did. Remarkable things. What great faith he had to do the things that he did. This wealthy man that God used in such a powerful way. And so many of the blessings that we have today go directly back to Abraham and his obedience. Let's look at James chapter 2. James refers to Abraham. Let's look at this. Just a kind of a wrap-up, as it were, about James. Just referring to him. James referring to a- Abraham. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Verse 21, James wrote, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Can you imagine the commitment that that took? To believe God and to do what he said, even though it made no sense to him. He was willing to do it. Verse 22, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Brethren, we certainly all want to be in that place. We want to be friends of God. And how do we do that? By obeying him and putting his ways into practice, which requires that commitment. Brethren, you know the story of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph And Moses, we study these things and we use them for Bible studies and around the holy day times. We look into these things. You know their stories. Turn over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, wonderful chapter here, talks about these people I've mentioned, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And let's pick it up in Hebrews 11, verse 32. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets. And all of you, brethren, know these stories. You read them. Read them, I hope, and, and learn from them. Verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. "...were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise." You see, not in their physical life. "...God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect." Apart from us. Brethren, we have these wonderful examples. And I hope that you read these scriptures and are encouraged by whatever your trial may be. You can look at what's going on and how God brought them through that. And even though they may not have survived their trial, they died in the faith and their salvation is sure. They had a strong commitment. Now, as we look into the Bible for positive examples, one of the very best examples was a woman. A beautiful story found in the book of Ruth. Turn back to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges. Here we see a rare and beautiful attitude in this woman. A rare and beautiful attitude indeed. You know the story. She was a Moabite. And after having... Uh, All of this uh, terrible things happened. Her father-in-law died. Her husband died. And now her mother-in-law is going back to from Moab back to Israel. And we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. The mother-in-law had said, go back to your people and so on. But Ruth persisted in verse 16. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go... I will go and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. You, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. What a strong commitment. What a strong commitment. It was, it, it should be an inspiration, brethren, for all of us. Ruth saw something in her mother-in-law that she wanted to be a part of and was willing to leave her nation, her people, and go there to be with her mother-in-law. And you know the story, how God used her, and she is in the lineage of Christ. Now, uh, God's servants have admonished His people to be committed down through time. We've seen it in the Old Testament. We see it in, in, in the New Testament. There is a wonderful example over in the book of Joshua. Turn over to Joshua, Joshua who continued after Moses' death, who certainly showed courage and continually talked about courage. Joshua 24, toward the end of the book. Joshua chapter 24. Here we find inspiring words. Joshua 24, verse 14. Joshua 24, verse 14, Joshua said, Now therefore fear the eternal and serve Him in sincerity and truth. You know, some things don't change. Paul used those words later on in the New Testament, serving God in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But look at this commitment, brethren. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was no doubt where Joshua stood. No doubt, brethren, he was going to stick to the plan. He had for a long time, and here toward the end of his book, he reaffirms that he and his house would serve the Lord. A wonderful example for sure. And then fast forward a little bit over to 1 Kings. Here we see a story of Elijah, the prophet by, through which God worked so many really incredible miracles. Very interesting and, and productive life that, that Elijah had. And here we find in 1 Kings 18 that there's a contest. There's a contest, obviously, uh, going on. Elijah saw the people being led astray into idolatry, and so he called for them to have a contest. And you can read all the details, but it said, um, um, verse 19 says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So what do we have? 850 false priests and so on have been summoned. And you know the story, there was to be a sacrifice, and Elijah says, you go first. You call down fire from heaven and, and have your God uh, accept this sacrifice. And, of course, they couldn't do that, and they went through all sorts of machinations to do that, cutting themselves and screaming and whatever. Nothing happened because their, their God was false, of course. And then as they were getting ready to go here, look at what Elijah said. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. They didn't answer him because they knew that he was right. Brethren, how long? How long? Some people, of course, have known the truth for decades and yet have faltered. Faltered between following what's going on in the world and actually embracing God's truth in his way of life and moving on. So the question that Elijah asked long ago to those people is valid today. How long will you falter between two opinions? And hopefully then God will bring us to a place where we're making a commitment. Now, if you, for the results that you want, let's look at some advice found over in Proverbs. Turn over to Proverbs. I hope you study the Proverbs because there's so much wisdom there that you can use every day. Proverbs 16 Proverbs 16, verse 3. Proverbs 16, verse 3 says, Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. So, brethren, it's very plain God requires a commitment, He can't use a drifter. Won't use a drifter, you see. He he wants a commitment, and it says here in this book of wisdom, Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. That's because your thoughts will be in line with God's thoughts, and He will bless it. Turn over to or to Psalm 37. Let's look at a psalm of David. David, a man after God's own heart, so fervent. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Beautiful psalm. I hope you'll read all of it. We'll just look at verse 5 because it makes the point that we have to make here this afternoon. Psalm 37, verse 5. David said, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. Commit your ways to the Lord. David understood that, brethren. And hopefully we can understand it as well. God will honor your commitment. That's what it's saying here. He You can count on it. He will honor your commitment. Now, God also made it plain very early to His people that He requires a commitment. He made it so plain, and it's a part of the basic ten. Turn back to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Most of you know this by heart. But as we think about a commitment and what's required, let's see what He said to those people. And it's recorded for us. It applies to us. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. God said to the people back then, and it's here for us, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the eternal your God, am a jealous God. Interesting term, jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me. And keep my commandments. God made it plain that He required a commitment. It's so basic, but it's oh so important. Turn over to Deuteronomy four. He just God describes Himself here. It's a it's a it's an analogy that we can all understand. Deuteronomy four. Here the Deuteronomy of course is a restatement of the law as Moses went over everything before his death. Deuteronomy four, verse twenty four. he is again talking about not having any gods before him and restating that. But in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 4, it says for the eternal, your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Notice not a flickering candle, not lukewarm, but a consuming fire. He said that he was a jealous God and We'll look at that in a moment and see what that means. So God said that He wasn't willing to share His people. He required a commitment. Turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians and let's see what the Apostle Paul said. What, what was the Apostle Paul's attitude on this subject? The Apostle Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 11. Brethren, we're looking at lots of Scriptures today. I don't want to wear you but this is where we get the pieces of the puzzle. That really show that we need to make a commitment that it is a righteous, uh, it is a spiritual requirement. Second Corinthians eleven, verse two. Paul told the people there in Corinth. He said in Second Corinthians eleven, verse two, "For I am jealous for you, with a godly jealousy." Is there such a thing? It must be. He says, "With a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband." that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul had this attitude. He had a godly jealousy for those people that he had worked with and that he had brought along to conversion. Now, again, looking uh, into Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, jealousy. What is it talking about here? It comes from zeal. The dictionary says intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness, vigilant in guarding a possession. Zealous vigilance is what it's talking about. God is zealous. He is jealous about you. He will not share His people with other gods that are not gods. Now, as we think about these things, brethren, uh, our attitude toward God and His church, including His work, is very important to him. It's very important to him how we approach these things. He will not tolerate a lackadaisical, a flippant, a carefree approach. He wants to see a different attitude. He says that he is a consuming fire. He wants us to be zealous as well. Now, let's look at the parables of Jesus Christ, uh, some of them, and, and see what they illustrate to make the point. Turn over to Mark, Mark 12. Mark 12, these wonderful stories that weren't understood by the people that heard them, but we can understand them because God has opened our minds to them, and they illustrate wonderful principles. Mark 12, verse 41, very familiar story to you. Mark 12, verse 41. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and saw how the people put money into the treasury. So this was one of those learning moments for the disciples, you see. Jesus is watching what's going on. And many who were rich put in much. Then, verse 42, one poor widow came and threw in two mites. This would be a couple of pennies. A copper coin. Not worth much then, like our our copper coin A penny is not worth much today. Threw in two mites, which make a quadrants, which was a Roman coin. So he, Jesus, called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance. You see, they didn't miss it. It wasn't a sacrifice for them. They had plenty. But she, out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Brethren, when someone is willing to put in their whole livelihood, we don't know her circumstance. We don't know what motivated her to do that. If she was near death, whatever the situation, we don't know. But we know that she had a real commitment because she put in all. that You can't give any more than that. And that's what she gave. It demonstrated to God her commitment. Now, uh, as we think about that and realize that God does see what we do, and He's interested, it, it tells Him, our actions tell Him something. Turn over to Matthew 13, looking at some more parables that illustrate commitment. Matthew 13, verse 44. He's giving a series of parables here about the kingdom of heaven, something that we talk about, something that we think about, that we write about. We do television programs on them. It's it's what we focus on. And Jesus now is talking about this in these parables. Matthew 13, verse 44. Again, He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. You ever think about the kingdom that way, brethren? As, as a treasure? Something that's very valuable? That's the analogy. Which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. You see the commitment? Uh, <laughs> is it important enough for you to give your all? It was for this man in this parable. He sold all that he had because it was that precious to him. It was a treasure. And he recognized that. Then let's go right on to the next uh, verse 45. Again, just another parable. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Someone looking for something very beautiful and very valuable. Verse 46, who, when he found one pearl of great price, notice, not several, one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Think about that, brethren. Uh, <laughs> he took action and obtained it, even though it cost him all that he had. So everything that he had, he traded for this pearl of great price. It's an analogy of how we should look at the kingdom and see if it really is that important to us. So we, we also see other parables that talk about commitment and how we're to put our commitment into practice. Look at Matthew 25. Very familiar scriptures to you. You're all students of the Bible, so you know these things as well as I do. But let's look at them today and think about them in, in the light of what we're talking about. Matthew 25. verse 14 here we have a very familiar parable to you Matthew 25 verse 14 for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his servants and delivered his goods to them and he gave to one one he gave 5 talents to another 2 and to another one each according to his own ability and immediately he went on the journey you know as we think about that we we have different talents and abilities some are strong in one area and others in another. I kidded Mr. Rod McNair recently and told him he had the gift of scheduling because he schedules all the sermons and so on. He said it was a dubious gift. <laughs> but different gifts. And these men had different gifts. And so one he gave five, and another two, and another one. And you know the story. He went away. And we see... Uh, that the one man worked and traded and the one that had 5 made 5 more and the one who had 2 gained 2 more and i always like to say they got to deduct their expenses this was net okay they actually doubled it <laughs> god obviously takes care of us along the way but they doubled it they worked hard they were committed to the what their master said and then the third one though we see did not do that then we pick up the story here in uh verse Um, 21, let's go down to verse 21. As the Lord has returned, you see the Master, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've taken five and made five more. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And then, of course, the other one with the two had the same message. Well done, good and faithful servant. But then um, look at the verse 24. Then the one who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seeds. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to who Hamas has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will, will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. So as we read this, we see that this one who held on, who did nothing, Missed his opportunity. He had lack of commitment. He was not willing to follow the Master's uh, uh, counsel and instructions. And so it cost him uh, his... He didn't get anything and cost him his life. Christ's instruction is plain, brethren. It requires total commitment. Total commitment is required. Turn over to John 15. John 15... Jesus Christ talked about this a lot. We read these um, verses during Passover time, which will be coming before long. John 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Think about that, brethren. There may be a situation where one would lay down his physical life and actually give up his life for a friend. But then more often, giving your life, just what is your life? It's your time, your energy, your concern, maybe your money in helping someone else. What does your life consist of? If you're willing to lay down that for your friends, then Jesus Christ knows that you're committed to the way. It's it's evidence of that. And then, of course, John, who was so close to Jesus Christ, wrote this back in 1 John. 1 John 3. 1 John 3. In these short books back here before Revelation. 1 John 3. Verse 14. John wrote, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And you know, brethren, I make the joke that we're a hyperactive group here. We're always having different activities and socials. And, and uh, uh, you know, when, when the Sabbath is over, we have to kind of run people away because it's late and it's time to go because we love to be together. And we see this around the world in the church because we love the brethren. That's pleasing to God. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And then dropped verse 16. By this we know love. Because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The ultimate sacrifice, brethren. It's very plain that God would have us to lay down our lives in service to our brothers and sisters and to His work. Now, it's plain that God works through His church, made up of His Spirit-begotten people, His children. He is involved with and concerned with the church. We see the fruits of that, and you see that, I'm sure. Now, as we think about the Apostle Paul, we've looked at several of the things that he wrote today. What was on Paul's mind as an apostle in those days? What was he thinking about? Turn over to 2 Corinthians 11. Incredible chapter here in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul recounts some of the things that he had gone through. Second Corinthians 11. He talked about that um, he'd been beaten... Uh, so many times that he was, he was he was shipwrecked three times. I always say I would not get on an airplane with the Apostle Paul <laughs> because he, he, his track record wasn't very good, but he survived. He was, a, he, he was in journeys often. Uh, he was in waters and, and perils of robbers. All these things that he went through, weariness and toil and sleeplessness, hunger and thirst and cold and nakedness. Verse 28, he said, besides the other things, and you wonder, what, can I, what else could there be? <laughs> but what was on his mind? What comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. He was not concerned for his personal welfare, for the suffering that he's gone through. He was concerned for the churches. Brethren, he sets us a wonderful example. And certainly, brethren, today we see God's church, not the living church, but God's church, the greater church of God, in disarray. And what a sad thing that is. And I'm sure, as Paul had concern for the churches, I have concern, and many of you have concern for the churches as in that situation. Satan is busy. And there are many distractions, and we're all vulnerable in some way to those distractions. And we need God's help to resist. There, there are many things that can turn someone's head, that can get their attention. Uh, you know, out there today, there are various groups and ministries and programs. They turn out streams of tapes and booklets and emails. Um, uh, and, and, and some people, probably maybe some of you, are fascinated by that activity. And, uh, you know, you like to look into it and spend your time on it and so on. Well, in the past several years, I've seen so many people come and go. And in almost every case, their departure has been because they've become confused over doctrinal matters. Things that they should have proven and understood. Uh, they left disagreeing with the church on such things as church government or when we keep the Passover or how we keep the Passover. When we keep Pentecost or, you know, was was Mr. Armstrong the end time Elijah? Uh, people get bug eyed about this, you see. Uh, the church eras. What is the work? Tithing. Predestination. Postponements. Calendar issues. All these things are out there, you see, and people focus on them and get their eyes off the goal. Now, There are many, and as the Scripture would say, not a few. (laughs) There are false prophets and self-appointed teachers, not a few, uh, out there. Experts who want to attract followers based on some pet theory or some misuse of prophecy. And people sometimes are attracted to that. Brethren, it's a free country. You're adults. uh, You're free moral agents. You can listen to what you want to. You can read and study anything you want to. The responsibility is yours. But ask yourself the question, is it smart? Is it a good use of your time? Is it going to edify and build up or tear down? Let me urge you to guard the door to your minds. God's truth is precious, and it is worth hanging on to and holding on to. Certainly, we see that. Uh, Let's turn over to 2 2 Corinthians. Well, actually, we're in 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, verse 3. I read this earlier, but it, it's something we can repeat. Paul said, I fear somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He was amazed. Paul was very... Plain spoken about this. And brethren, I would certainly hope that we could be plain spoken. And just say, uh, stick to the things that you have proven and you'll do fine. Turn over to Romans 16. Here we have an instruction that's very important. Sometimes it's hard for us to do. But it's something we should keep in mind. Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So it's clear, brethren, if it doesn't square with what you know to be true, avoid it and avoid them. And trouble we held to a minimum, for sure. Now, brethren, we learn from... Mr. Armstrong, and other faithful ministers. Dr. Meredith has been an evangelist for over 50 years. Along the way, of course, we've made mistakes. But certainly, Dr. Meredith has not deviated from the truth. And we have the example of those some who have died. Mr. O'Gwen, Mr. Carl McNair, Mr. Pardian. Certainly, Mr. Ames is going strong. Dr. Meredith working hard every day, teaching us and, and leading us in the way that we needed to go. The Scripture says, by their fruits you know them. Matthew 7, verse 20. Brethren, look at the fruits of a lifetime and realize where your instruction has come from. Something that we should keep in mind. Brethren, my purpose today has been to just to remind you of these things and to remind you that there are a, there is a threat of many distractions and so on that could come your way wrapped up in physical activities or wrapped up in religion. They can happen. But... Certainly, let's look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. A bedrock scripture, and it'll be my last scripture today. Some of you thought I would never get there. Isaiah chapter 8. Again, a memory verse for you. Isaiah 8, verse 20. When things come your way, just keep in mind. Isaiah 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony... If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Brethren, know what you, we are constantly admonishing you to prove these things, and we do again today. God can use a person who is committed to his way, his church, and his work. Have the courage and character, brethren, to be a committed Christian. Commitment is a spiritual requirement.